Amen. Good morning again, Christ Central Church. As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. It's my privilege to share God's Word with you this morning. I want to begin by taking you back a little bit, try to jog your memory. Uh, about 10 years ago, 2006, in a stroke of genius, in my opinion, uh, Time Magazine named you as the person of the year. No, not me. They named you. Every single one of you was named Time Magazine Person of the Year. I don't know if any of you saw the article. A very compelling uh, piece, and this is how the article started. Uh, somewhat prophetic, in my opinion. It said, The great man theory of history is usually attributed to the Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle, who wrote that, the history of the world is but the biography of great men. He believed that it is the few, the powerful, and the famous who shape our collective destiny as a species. That theory took a serious beating this year. That's how the article begins, and the article goes on to highlight that that beating came at the hands of simpletons like you and me. Uh, no longer do you and I have to sit back and watch as great men shape our collective destiny. Now we have the power to change the world. And according to time, uh, this power is wielded through the medium of the internet. Uh, in 2006, when the article was written, the article references the weapons of the day. YouTube, MySpace, and then at the time the brand new player, Facebook. It's kind of nostalgic, isn't it? Uh, however, today in 2015, we have a much greater arsenal of weapons to promote ourselves, don't we? Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, countless others that I'm not cool enough to even know about. Uh, there's this movement of self-promotion. But what's significant here and what Time Magazine recognized almost 10 years ago is that a new society was being created where everyone could be a star. Today, everyone has a chance to be in the spotlight. You can make movies in your basement and have millions of followers. You can make party favors for your son's birthday party and blow up the Pinterest world. You can write an article and you can skip the now archaic process of getting it published and simply stick it on Facebook and you can make waves across the country. You can post a home video of your daughter and her friends singing Nicki Minaj, and all of a sudden, they're regulars on the Ellen DeGeneres show. You guys know what I'm talking about. Greatness is right there at your fingertips. Now, we could spend hours talking about the consequences of this cultural shift on ourselves, on our children, on our children's children, but I'm not so much interested in the consequences of this shift, but rather how we got here. What made us, what motivated us to pursue this everyone gets to be a star society? And I think the answer lies in the fifth of the seven deadly sins, the sin we'll be looking at this morning, the sin of vainglory. Vainglory, you say? What in the world is that? Uh, this is not a term that we use anymore. I, I cannot remember the last time I confessed to a brother 
that I've been struggling with the sin of vainglory. We don't talk like that anymore, so we do need to define that. What is vainglory? Vainglory is, is defined as the excessive and disordered desire for recognition from others. The excessive and disordered desire for recognition from others. Its closest kin is certainly pride. Uh, the difference being, whereas pride is most concerned about the internal comparison. I know I'm better than you, is what pride says. Vainglory is much more concerned about the external affirmation. You know that I'm better than you. Vainglory is about the applause, right? It's about the show. And just like all the other seven deadly sins, unfortunately, there's a healthy dose of this in all of us. We all struggle with an ex excessive desire to be noticed, to be applauded, to be, dare I say, glorified. Uh, we all long to be great and to be seen as great. And because this sin is so pervasive, it makes perfect sense that when the internet opened the door for worldwide exhibitionism, for lack of a better term, that our culture jumped on the opportunity on the grandest of scales. Because with every like of our post or picture or video, with every friend request and retweet, we are feeding that deep longing, that nagging desire for glory. So what do we do? Well, as Christians, we must turn to the Word of God to see what God has to say about this deadly sin. And when we open the Scriptures, what we begin to quickly see is that vainglory was not birthed with Mark Zuckerberg, but in fact has been a part of our society from the dawn of creation. And although there are numerous places in the Bible that we could look at to see vainglory, I think the best place for us to look is in the lives, and more specifically, the hearts of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees present a perfect case study of vainglory gone wild. So I ask that you would now turn with me in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 23. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12, and if you're able, would you stand now for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not, but, excuse me, whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now to 
to hear you speak to us through your word. And um, I know that this text rubs all over me, and I know it will over every person in this room. So, God, I ask that you prepare our hearts for what is being said here, that we might be able to receive from you and not just feel conviction, but be compelled and empowered to walk in a new way. By your Spirit, would you do that this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So a little context for our text this morning, since we're diving right in the middle of a narrative. Our text is a small piece of a much larger dialogue that began back in chapter 21, when Jesus entered into the temple, as he often did, and began to teach. And as he begins to teach, he begins to draw a crowd, as Jesus typically does. And the Pharisees, those who typically taught, and those who typically drew the crowds, began to get upset. They began to get jealous. Can you smell the vainglory already at work here? Can you see even the hints already of the excessive and disordered desire for recognition from others? It's alive and well in the Pharisees. So as we begin to unpack this text this morning, I want to highlight three things for us. First, the symptoms of vainglory. Secondly, the deadliness of vainglory. And third, the antidote for vainglory. The symptoms, the deadliness, and the antidote. So just to let the cat out of the bag, I want to highlight that we are sick, that this sickness is killing us, and there's a way to get healing for this disease. Amen? So let's begin. The symptoms of vainglory. See, vainglory functions much like many of the other seven deadly sins in that it creeps up on us. It's often hard to notice at first. And then before you know it, the disease has infected your whole body, your whole life. And so because of its subtle and somewhat disease-like nature, we need to first examine our own lives to see if we are in fact sick, to see if this sin is present in us. And before we point the magnifying glass at our own lives, let's first look at the lives of the Pharisees, because it's a lot more fun to talk about other people's sin rather than our own. Amen? Amen. You say amen to that. So Jesus begins by highlighting the Pharisees' abuse of their power. He says they sit on Moses' seat. He's saying, they are the ones who have been appointed by me to teach my law. But Jesus quickly points out that their lives in no way reflect the words that are coming out of their very mouths. Why is this happening? What's the problem? I think Jesus gives us the answer in verse 5, and it's really where the sin of vainglory begins to crop up and show its ugly head. Listen again to the text. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And then Jesus breaks it down further for us. He says, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Now there's some terms here that obviously need defining. The phylacteries, these are small leather boxes Uh, that were worn on the forehead and the left arm of the priests. And God had commanded the priests to wear these things. Inside were scrolls, scrolls typically from Exodus and Deuteronomy. So they're there to be reminding the priests of the Word of God. And so God has commanded them to do this. So what's the big deal? What's Jesus' beef here? Why is he upset with what they're doing? Well, the big deal here is that the Pharisees had decided to upsize their phylacteries. 
Uh, They, instead of carrying around these modest little boxes, they're now wearing these massive fashion accessories. Why are they doing that? Unfortunately, they're not doing that so they can fit more scrolls inside their phylactery. They're doing this so that they can be observed, so they can be seen, so they can be recognized. Then Jesus goes on to talk about their long fringes on their robe. Again, it's very common in early Jewish culture for the prophets to be recognized by their longer robes with their long tassels. But again, Jesus is pointing out here that the Pharisees had taken this practice and they'd run with it. Instead of modestly altering their wardrobe, as they'd been instructed to do, they had chosen to adorn themselves in the Armani robes with the Versace tassels, if you know what I mean. The the whole wardrobe had become this great big show. And the Pharisees had become obsessed with being noticed. Verse 7, they love places of honor at at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Rabbi, which literally translates my great one. They loved that title. Now you can see what I mean by vainglory gone wild. These Pharisees had gotten totally wrapped up in their reputation in being noticed and being exalted. The role of the priest was to be a mediator between God and his people. The priest was supposed to usher people into God's presence to make much of God so that they could see God and worship and exalt him. And the Pharisees, in turn, are now making much of themselves so that people will worship and exalt them instead. Those are the symptoms of vainglory. It's when we want recognition above all else. and We're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. It's when our self-worth gets wrapped up in what people think of us. Our church is easy to point the finger here and not allow this text to convict us as it should. But do these symptoms exist in us as well? Church, how often does your pursuit of holiness become nothing but a show? Do you ever share what you learned in the Word so that people might think you're a godly person? Do you ever quote scripture, not because the person needs to hear it, but because you want that person to know that you really know your Bible? Do you ever correct people's theology, not because it really matters, but because you like being seen as more knowledgeable than others? Do you desire to be an elder or deacon or member of the women's leadership team in this church out of a desire to be recognized and exalted as a leader in this church? Do you ever engage in acts of mercy so that you might be recognized as someone who loves the least of these? I'll call him back. Um, church, can I be vulnerable with you guys? So the only way I know how to preach. I've had to ask myself more than once, Timothy, why did you move on Canal Street, where my family lives? Is it because you love the recognition that comes from living in the hood? The sad reality is that my heart is so wicked that so often that motive is, is absolutely at play. I love being viewed as a radical Christian. Strokes my ego. I love the fame. 
Church, do we do godly things primarily to be recognized as godly rather than out of a love of God and a desire to please Him? The answer is yes. And that is evidence that this deadly sin of vainglory is alive in all of us. Now, unfortunately, we need to push this application a little bit further. Not only does vainglory show up in the church, but it also shows up in our day-to-day lives. Clearly, the church is not the only sphere in which we desire to be recognized. In our text this morning, Jesus is coming after the Pharisees, the celebrities of the day, I might add. But listen now to my modern-day rendition of this middle section of our text. See if it doesn't step on your toes a bit. Verse 5, they love the spotlight. They love their clothes to be current, their phones to be Apple, their homes to be spacious and well-decorated, and their cars to be German or Japanese. They love getting all the Evites to the exclusive parties. They They love having their name in the paper, their generosity highlighted on Sunday morning, and their Instagrams to be liked and shared. They love to show off all the degrees on their business cards and to be referred to as doctor or CEO or valedictorian or chairman of the PTA or supermom. Now hear me, church, it's not that any of those things are innately bad, just like the Pharisees being recognized as men of God wasn't innately bad either, but it's when that recognition becomes our life and the source of worth in our life. That's when vainglory props up. Church, we have to begin to diagnose ourselves because no one else is going to do it. No one else can diagnose you for you. You have to ask yourself the question, how often is the driving force behind what you do your reputation? Vainglory is a sickness, and it's in all of us. But what's the big deal? Why does it matter that we are so consumed with our reputations, with being recognized and approved of? Which leads us to our second point this morning, the deadliness of vainglory. We call these the seven deadly sins, right? We see here that vainglory is both deadly to ourselves and to others. So I want to first look at how vainglory is deadly to those around us. Remember the context of our text here that I share with you. Jesus was minding his own business, teaching people in the synagogue about God. Seems like a good thing, right? It's a pretty good thing that he was doing. And yet, because Jesus was such a good teacher, the Pharisees were beginning to lose some of the limelight. They weren't so popular anymore. And the Pharisees were so upset about losing their fame and glory, they wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to murder him because he was stealing some of their PR. You'd think they'd be more concerned about their people knowing about God rather than concerned about from where they were getting their teaching. But they were so deeply entrenched in this sin of vainglory that they were willing to murder to make this glory thief go away. But we sit back and think that our vainglory is not that destructive, right? We're not really, it's not really at work in our relationships like that, right? I want to argue that the majority of the cruelty that comes out of us is actually driven by this very sin. You see, the reality is we cannot stand it. I think I can say we. Maybe I should say I. I cannot stand it when people get the applause that I want and that I think I deserve. This is so often where gossip comes from, right? Someone shares something great about someone else, and we feel the need to interject how that person actually isn't that great. 
how the reason they did that is because they're insecure or they, uh, they need your approval. And we just try to talk about how screwy their motives are. I don't know, maybe that's just me. I don't know if you ever do that. I'd like to be vulnerable again. I have to confess that there have been numerous times where I've wanted to or actually spoken ill of the Summit Church. Or I've wanted to talk about J.D. Greer and how he, he is clearly some sort of an egomaniac and you know, his motives are all wrong. And the reason that I want to do that is because I'm, I, I'm longing for that glory, that approval that the Summit Church has. But the reality is I've had a chance to worship at the Summit and actually had a few conversations with J.D. And he's actually an incredibly godly man. And the Summit Church is doing awesome things for this city. Amen? But the vain glory in me is so deep that I want to take that from them. I want that glory. I want that approval. I want that recognition. I don't know what that looks like in your life. Do you speak ill of your coworkers so that you'll get recognition at work? Do you slander other moms behind their backs so that people won't think so highly of them and maybe think highly of you? Do you trash the rival business in town to build up your own business's reputation? Do you mock your friend's clothing because it's too cheap or too expensive or outdated? I don't know what it looks like for you in your life, but the reality is that vainglory is deadly, and it makes us want to kill those around us so that we can have our glory back. But not only does vainglory serve to kill those around us, it actually serves to kill us as well. Listen to the words of Jesus back in Matthew 6. He's warning us of the deadliness of vainglory, and he's again using the Pharisees as his case study. Matthew 6, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Church, do you hear what Jesus is saying here? When we live for our rep- reputation, when we live for the approval of of man, when our heart motivation is our own glory, we in turn get no reward from the Father. He's certainly not pleased with that way of living. But it's even worse than that. Jesus finishes with this strange line, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Some translations say they have received their reward in full. Have you ever been around someone who's in active addiction or yourself been an addict? It's really hard to watch because what you see is you see someone who is convinced that they need something that they deep down know won't satisfy and ultimately will destroy them. It's crazy. And you know what? The addict is actually not stupid. They know that the drugs are destroying their life, but they can't live without that momentary escape that it provides. They know that that hit, that next hit is not going to take away the pain. It's just going to water it down for a little while but they need it just the same. Vainglory operates much the same way. We know that the fruit of vainglory does not truly satisfy, that the approval of man is fleeting and empty and insufficient, but we need that hit so bad. We keep coming back. We keep coming back, even though that we know it will never truly satisfy. 
Author William Murray says it this way, that the flattery of others is narcotic and addicting. It's killing us. It kills us because it blocks us from the true reward that God longs to give us. When we live for our reputations, we have our reward in full. And that reward will never satisfy. It will always leave us longing, much like Sisyphus. Greek mythology is forced to push this huge rock up the hill, and he can never quite get it up the top. And he's forced to watch it roll back down over and over and over again. So are we when we live for the approval of man. It never quite gets there. It's never enough. So what's the solution? How do we fight back this disease, this disease that so often rules our hearts? I think the text reveals a twofold antidote. Humility and exaltation. Look first with me at humility, verse 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus is saying here is that the antidote to an inordinate desire for recognition is to cultivate a heart of humility. And just to be clear here, the humility that Jesus is promoting is not this idea of thinking less of yourself. It's not some sort of self-abasement, woe is me. It's actually thinking of yourself less. It's cultivating a heart who's, where self is no longer on your radar. Does that make sense? Os Guinness says it this way, The humble are those who are so aware of their own bankruptcy in and of themselves that they have nothing to count on in this world except God, for His bliss will be theirs. The point here is to be reminded that the world doesn't really revolve around us. Amen? When we do this, this, this kind of self-promotion, when we realize that we are not the center of the universe, that we're truly broken and insufficient, this idea of self-promotion becomes rather ridiculous, right? If we know that we are truly bankrupt in and of ourselves, then the thought of trying to convince others into glorifying us becomes silly. How do we practically do How do we cultivate practically a heart of humility? I want to give you two thoughts. Take them or leave them. First, I... I challenge you to look at the stars. I'm only half joking uh, here. Was a, uh, my wife's family lives in Creedmoor out in the country, and I was once again struck by the beauty of the stars. When, when you get a chance to leave the city and look up at the sky, the stars have an effect on us, right? They remind us that we're small and that God is huge. I don't know if it's stars for you, but whatever it is, maybe it's going to the beach and seeing the incredible ocean or being in the mountains uh, or listening to beautiful music. I don't know what it is, but whatever reminds you of the fact that God is huge and awesome and we are so small, do that. Do that to cultivate a heart of humility. And then secondly, seek to be the moon and not the sun. I think this is a wonderful analogy for the Christian life. The moon exists primarily to reflect the sun, right? It reflects the sun's light. It produces no light in and of itself and has no glory whatsoever apart from the sun. If the sun stops shining, we will forget about the moon. Amen? Such should be our posture in this world. We are not the sun. We exist not to bring glory to ourselves, but to reflect the glory of the sun, the true sun, the one true sun, Jesus Christ. 
So instead of seeking to be famous and get all the glory and praise, instead we should seek to turn that glory and praise to the one who made us a great musician, the one who made us a great orator, the one who made us a great business manager or a great mom or a great janitor or a great student. Isn't that the heart of Matthew 5, 14? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When done correctly, our greatness should motivate others to give glory to God and not us. Amen? Lastly, this other antidote that I want to put before you is exaltation. Sounds contradictory, humility and exaltation. But I think this is, Jesus, Jesus is making a powerful point here, and I think if, you, if you're going to take away anything from this sermon, I want you to hear this. This, this exaltation that Jesus is re- referring to is so powerful because it strikes right at the heart of the sin of vainglory. It, talks, it strikes it right where vainglory comes from. Where does vainglory come from? And the truth is, it's like many other deadly sins. Vainglory is a God-given desire that's gone terribly wrong. God has put us in us a desire to be known and loved. I'm going to put on my psychologist hat for a bit, a hat that I'm not fit to wear, but I hope that you guys can hear this, and maybe Catherine Wilford and Amanda Klein will affirm what I say. We see, God created us. He created us with this need, this longing to be known and loved. That's our deepest core fundamental longing. But the problem is, at some point in our life, we experience the opposite. We experience rejection. We experience somebody knowing us and not loving us. It often happens at the hands of our parents, those who we most deeply want to say, I see you, I know you, and I love you. And when that happens, we in turn make a vow. We, we commit to never, ever feel that again. And so we pursue the approval of man with a reckless abandon. We're desperately searching for people to speak into our lives, you're okay, I love you, I see you. I love you, I I appreciate you, I approve of you. And so we're searching for that because we felt the rejection that comes when we don't feel that. Many of us can probably even picture that first time where we felt that rejection. So that's, that's this desire gone haywire. We're looking all around at people and asking, please approve of me, please accept me. And what God is saying, that's not my design. My design is that you would, in that pain, in that feeling of rejection, that you would come to me and allow me to meet that need and satisfy you. He's saying, I want to speak that approval over you. I want to exalt you. I want to lift you up. And so I want you to now, I'm going to read a passage for you, and I want you to listen as our Heavenly Father speaks this approval over us, this approval that comes not because you're that great, not because you performed well, but because Jesus Christ has covered you in His righteousness. And so now this is the voice that God speaks to us, and this is our hope for leaving this terrible, destructive, deadly sin of vainglory. God says, this is... David's speaking about how God feels about him. He says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. God knows you. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hands upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Church, do you hear that? 
the God of the universe knows you deeply, warts and all. He knows it all. And because of what Christ has done, he welcomes you. He receives you. He accepts you. And one day, church, one day, when it's all said and done, when your heart starts beating or when Jesus comes back, we are going to stand before the King of Kings dressed in all his splendor. And the one who really matters, the one whose approval we desperately need, is going to look at you. And in Christ, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Church, we have to hear that. It's those words that empower us. It's those words that drown out the voices around us and allow us to live for the one whose approval really matters. Amen? Church, let's pray.